0: Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Woodrow. This week, I'm starting with a quick anecdote. Please bear with me, this is not going to be a regular thing. Nor is the general tone of this tale... Terribly regular, either. I thought I was making something short and a little bit strange, to give me a bit of extra time on the last couple of episodes of 2022. A little bit of a fire break, I guess. That said, the episode took off on me when I put pen to paper, taking on a whole bunch of complexities I didn't see coming. Anyway, I ask you, give me a little bit of time to get this one going, and suspend disbelief a little bit on occasion. And if this tale's not for you, no worries, we'll be back to regular programming in two weeks' time. That said, I'm no animist, but there's a dream I had years ago. Apparently it's a dream that I can still clearly recall. In 2007, I worked in a call center by day, as a kind of in-house investigator. By night, I was a guitarist in a rock band that had a level of local buzz and a local following. The band never really broke through and everyone split, later taking up other creative endeavours, like podcasting. In 2007, though, we were self funding an extended EP, and when money ran short, I took to hiring myself out as a studio player for our producer for more studio time. Now, this was a fair piece of barter. I got to redo the guitars on one track. Our producer got to finish an EP she was working on. On having arrived home one night from a mix-down session that ran to around 2 a.m. I fell into a deep sleep to dream of, well, musical instruments. I was in a studio we borrowed for a day that was full of esoteric percussion and orchestral instruments, amid their collection a rather beat-up old cello with a string missing. At the session, I'd picked the instrument up and had it play, before deciding it wouldn't add anything to the song. A scratch track we'd recorded of the instrument was subsequently cut. In my dream, I picked the cello up, took a seat, and plucked away at the strings until something musical came out. Cello, it's been a long day, I said. It's been a long life, the cello replied. Once I was majestic, the tallest maple, on the block. When it rained, elk sheltered beneath my canopy. When the sun was out, robins perched upon me and sang like angels. We had our own song too, you know. When the wind blew, we sang, and what a song it was. Three and a half hours later, an alarm sounded, and I trundled off to work. Funny dream, I thought. I recall the last thing I'd read that week was an account of the Emperor Charlemagne and his vendetta against a tree, the Ermensel. Yeah, that'd be it. Exhaustion plus Charlemagne equals dreams of talking cellos. In that spirit, I invite you to suspend disbelief with me and take a boat ride down the River Thames, England. The year is 43 AD and we're cruising the river in search of a suitable place for a fortress. Everywhere we look there are trees, a heavy covering of weeping willows rising up from the wetlands, then bowing down again to kiss the water. As day-trippers in modern times we appreciate the Arcadian beauty of the scene. To a boatload of Roman legionnaires sailing into parts unknown, where as far as they know they could meet the same end as Varus's legions in the Teutoburg forest. It must have been terrifying. But this is not the tale of those Romans. They established London, well, Londinium to use their term. And they do many, many other things. We're mostly interested in those willow trees and we'll return to London and eventually to those trees in a minute. But first we need to discuss money. Now, in my first episode on Marshall Bourdin, I stated time itself is a very real phenomenon. But how we measure time is nothing more than a standardized set of measures, agreed upon by all. We do this in part because of precedence, and in part because it's in the interests of those in power to do so. Sometimes it'll be in the interests of society as a whole. We call this a noble myth or a noble lie. Though the origins of money are somewhat murky, we can fairly safely say, in its every iteration, it has been a noble myth. Now onto that origin story. Nobody's ever recorded the wires and wherefores. There is a tale that states money came about from necessity, as the earlier system of barter reached its limits. Once, all our ancestors were nomadic hunter-gatherers. But the advent of the Ice Age pushed many of the animals they hunted towards places sure to still have food. Fertile river valleys. Humans, still hunter-gatherers, followed their prey. Once in these enclaves, as land elsewhere became barren, our ancestors became territorial, claiming ownership over the land. From around 10,000 years ago, we began to domesticate certain animals as pets, or beasts of burden. Many humans learned to farm the land for food and other supplies. Around 4,000 years ago, at several places, all at once, we invented the plough. The plough created massive surpluses and freed up five-sixths of the workforce to diversify. The working theory is this diversification led to greater choice in how one swapped their surplus goods for other things. But it proved terribly inefficient. Let's say you made arrows and you needed grain, but none of the hunters who use your arrows grew crops. None of the farmers who have the grain need arrows anymore. Then what do you do? Without a double coincidence of wants between the parties, it was hypothesized. Barter failed. There, a standardized proxy for goods seems sensible, right? Something quite rare and durable enough to withhold being passed from one person to the next many times over. Where this theory falls down is that there is some proof Barter went on in some places, but no proof yet found of a community who bartered then ditched the practice for a system of money. Somewhere along the line, though, the idea of money of account, a token of standardized value, grew. Early methods included cowrie shells and beads. The Mesopotamians of modern-day Iraq invented the shekel sometime around 2150 BC. A silver coin which borrowed its name from a measurement of barley. The shekel was used for our much of the Near East. Money was truly standardised, however, by the Lydians of modern-day Turkey, around 1000 B.C. They had several different coins worth several different amounts. Their rulers even put their faces on the coins for the first time. In the late 6th century B.C., their king Croesus, a man with a great love for his ample fortune, became a person of interest in Greece as did those coins which bore his image. Precious' great love of money, his meeting with the Athenian lawmaker Solon, and his later run-in with the Persians is of interest, but we'll shelve that for another day. We've got a lot of ground to cover. From Lydia to Greece to Rome and beyond, you can sketch more or less unbroken lines to modern coinage. Back in England, those Roman soldiers sailing down the Thames settled. They, of course, were paid in coins. Over the course of the first century, they brought destruction, conquering as far as what later became Hadrian's Wall. They also brought vast building and infrastructure projects. Roads and canals, public buildings, built in stone and sometimes clad in marble. Groves of willow trees were felled to make way for a walled city, which held 50,000 at its Roman-era peak. There's no word if the weeping willows wept at such carnage. Stick with the plot device, it'll make sense in the end. A section of the English public, then a pre-literate society, learned to read and write and count. The Roman presence opened up lines of trade with the Empire and Europe, and as such, opportunity for some. They also brought money to a people completely unaccustomed to the concept. For a small number of Britain's elite, the Roman presence brought great wealth, prestige, and nice things like costly villas to live in. For perhaps as much as 99% of Britons, however, life was a similar daily grind to before, where one mostly subsisted and occasionally starved, but at least they had nice roads to travel along and slightly nicer pottery. But of course the Romans also brought a time of peace. With as many as 50,000 legionnaires along Hadrian's Wall alone, Britain's elite slept well in their villas at night, assured no Picts, Scots, Goths, Vandals, Saxons, Angles or Swabians could arrive and steal their precious money. But this peace wouldn't last forever. Rome disintegrated throughout the 4th century for numerous reasons. The supply of shiny new silver coins everyone had become accustomed to slowed to a trickle, as the empire struggled to keep the lights on. Many of those soldiers England's peace had depended on were stationed to other parts of the empire where trouble was really brewing for Rome. The English, knowing money didn't grow on trees, well, not yet anyway started to clip their coins to make the money go further, cutting chunks of silver off existing coins to mint new ones. In 409 AD, England, feeling Rome had advocated all their responsibility to them, Brexited from the Romans in a successful rebellion. Having taken back the sovereignty, the cash flow stopped completely. And what's more, without garrisons of troops to protect them, The Picts of the North descended with a vengeance upon them. Thriving cities and expensive villas were abandoned. Many wealthy Britons buried their beloved, their now dog-eared coinage, into hordes. The land descended into an anarchy that would take hundreds of years to recover from. The willow trees took back much of London. When the wind blew, they sang a song of victory. When it rained, the red deer took shelter. When the moon was full, the wolves howled ominously. Now I'm looking to plough too big a field if I described everything that happened in England in the following years. The chronicler, the Venerable Bede, stated attacks from the Picts and Scots worsened. An English warlord named Vortigern hired a mercenary army of Saxons from the north of modern-day Germany to help them fight back. Unfortunately for Vortigen, the Saxons liked England so much. They returned with friends and took over the country. Now this story could contain some truth. Britons were not allowed to use weapons under Roman occupation, so most lacked the skills to repel a professional army. We know the Saxons, Angles and Jutes established several kingdoms in England in the early 440s and some kind of widespread slaughter of Britons did take place. Like the origin of money, the history of this time is incredibly murky, so we'll move on. Now, Vikings first showed up in 789, and made a big splash in 793, when they wrecked the monastery on the island of Lindisfarne. Anglo-Saxon England was divided into at least a dozen kingdoms, at times several dozens, ruled by all kinds. But we're now straying a long way from money and trees, so we'll head back towards the topic. Londinium had slowly repopulated, just shy of two centuries after it was abandoned. It would become Londonwick before it later became known as London. Shepherds first ventured into the area now called Covent Garden. It seemed a nice place to keep sheep. Over time, others would come, and the city would rebound, but to of willows this time must have seemed like paradise. Shepherds sheltered under them in the rain and when the stars shone bright young lovers sung of love and longing like Chaucer's Absalom to an unattainable Alison. One presumes the trees provided swelling harmonies and coins returned to England under King Offa King of Mercia his reign 757-796 the man brought back the silver penny. His coins were remarkable in some ways, often of a higher quality than anything being minted in mainland Europe at the time. Some carried Arabic writing on one side, and some others carried the image of his wife, Sinifrith, making her the only Anglo-Saxon queen represented on money. An empire builder intent on bringing England under just one ruler, Coinage was a kind of propaganda to the king, a way of big-noting himself and letting everybody know he was the new boss. Offer embraced this aspect of money, as did every subsequent king or queen after him. By the time of the Normans in the 11th century, coins were well-established, but wealth had gravitated upwards into the hands of a small, elite class. A general shortage of ready cash among the populace, to pay taxes with, often proved troublesome to the English royals. Take Henry I, fourth son of William the Conqueror. On his father's death, he had to buy his own fiefdom in Normandy, off his older brothers. In 1091, he was deposed of that kingdom by his brother Robert, and had to fight a costly war with him. By 1100, he was king of England and Normandy, but was broke and facing multiple challenges to his crown. He desperately needed tax revenue, if only money grew on trees. Well, it did, but not in the way of thinking. Let's put China and paper money to one side for now. The royals came up with a plan that if these willows had emotions, they would have been shaking in terror over it. Whole groves of weeping willows were press-ganged into finance. Henry I came up with an interesting way to keep receipts on taxes paid. Taxes would be recorded on a tally stick as you had an annual tax bill, but typically paid it in two halves, twice a year. A tally stick was a piece of wood, usually willow, that was split in two. Both parts were marked with identical notches to denote just how much the person had paid. The payer kept the longer piece, known as the stock, This is where we get the word stocks from. The Exchequer kept the shorter piece, known as the foil. Willow trees were perfect for use as tally sticks, as their distinctive grain pattern meant you couldn't easily substitute one stock with another foil. When it came time to confirm who'd paid the taxes, both parts would join back together and the grain would match. People realised that they were in need of money, They could often trade their stocks for close to that sum of money. The new stockholder knew it was as good as guaranteed money come tax time. Jewelers often got into the business of buying tally sticks off the hard-up and created a secondary market. Henry II realized this also meant he could sell stocks to people for their future taxes at a slight discount allowing for quick cash injections of money was needed to go fight a war or something similar. The stockholders could then sell that stock at a profit on a secondary market. These tokens often spread far and wide in the kingdom, many times a long way away from the original taxpayer. On occasion, however, a king such as Charles II might decide to game the system. Having been restored to the throne in 1660, his father Charles I having lost his head, Charles agreed he would allow Parliament to pay him a wage drawn from the taxes, granting them the power to dole out his money and to set taxes. Unfortunately for the monarch, a cluster of unfortunate things happened. First Parliament was stingy, paying him less than expected, while keeping taxes static. Second, the Crown were limited in their printing of new money, due to a sudden lack of bullion entering the country at the time. The Great Plague, followed by the Great Fire of London, wiped out the King's cash reserves, leading to him making deals with France, one publicly known to send soldiers to help in their fight against the Dutch. The other was kept secret and it was a pact to expose that he was actually Catholic, theoretically forcing the nation back on the old faith, which he only did on his deathbed. But this still wasn't enough. By 1671, Charles was heavily in arrears on his payments to the Army, Navy and to his debtors. So he flooded the market, the jewelers particularly, with cheap tally sticks. A buying frenzy on the secondary market incredibly pushed the value of the sticks up until their profits exceeded 10%. Now when that debt came due a year later, and the stockholders came to the crown to collect their profits, well the king couldn't repay his debt, but he had a way out. Any debt agreement at the time with annual interest rates in excess of 6% was considered predatory lending. The usury laws then stated any such debt was null and void, and to be promptly ignored by the debtors. On these grounds, Charles refused to pay them, crashing the value of tally sticks overnight. Many a jeweller went bankrupt, ending up in debtors' prisons. So it's unsurprising tally sticks fell out of favour, as useful as they'd once been, as a form of currency they limped on until 1826. I couldn't tell you what songs of woe they sang in those days. Increasingly, they took up basement space in the government's treasury, and collected dust. On 16th of October 1834, it was decided our wooden heroes would be immolated. Rather than do something civic-minded, like have a large public bonfire. Or kind, like giving the old tally sticks away to people to use as firewood for the coming winter. The palace's clerk of works decided the sticks would be fed into two ovens beneath the House of Lords. Throughout the day, two full cartloads of sticks were gradually fed into the furnace. As the workday came to an end, with the basement floor actually hot to the touch, the workmen doused the flames and packed up for home. An hour later, the flames reignited. The wife of the doorkeeper rushed to the deputy housekeeper to advise the fire had not just reanimated, it was burning the entire building down and threatened to spread to the rest of the palace. As the building went up in flames, renowned artists like J.M.W. Turner crowded around outside, paint an easel at the ready. Turner painted several canvases of the Great Fire of 1834. As I said at the beginning, I'm no animist. I don't believe plants and trees, rocks, stones, or the great eternal blue sky have feelings, souls or sentience. But isn't it a little fun to suspend disbelief for a second? And imagine those sticks. Once majestic and content down by the riverside, they sang in the breeze till someone robbed them of their essential being. Press-ganged into service, they'd lost their voice used and abused by a man who, quite frankly, should have hugged every single tree he ever came into contact with. The second time I'm mentioning this, we will come back to that story. They were branded villainous and untrustworthy. Left in a basement to moulder for years, they were ultimately robbed of a final chance to be of service or use to others. Don't you just want to allow them one final act of revenge? As the painters captured the billowing smoke, and firemen fought a losing battle to contain the damage. Well, I couldn't tell you what their final song was, but I'll tell you this. It brought the house down. Thank you for listening, this has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes. Get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon. Also, in the notes, if you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice and share the episode as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.